I am continually um, amazed at the good fortune that we have in this country. And looking at the world events, it's just becomes more and more clear that we not only have um, access to a beautiful plethora of spiritual traditions, Buddhist or otherwise, but we also have the freedom to explore. We have nobody watching us, nobody shooting us, nobody jailing us or torturing us because we happen to believe something different. Or how, you know, it's just stunning. So as we share today about the Buddhist teachings and how the different Buddhist traditions, their similarities and their differences, let's hold that not only in a spiritual context, but in a world, in a family, in a community context, that despite our differences, what we must always come back to are all the things that we share, all the similarities, what we care about, that we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, that we want to make a difference in the world, cultivate our good qualities and relinquish those that seem to become huge obstacles to being able to do that. And so we're here today together just to explore some ways in which that might be enhanced, and let's rejoice in our good fortune to be able to meet together as friends and to explore these uh, teachings in a way that may they be of benefit not only just to us, but to all beings. And uh, I have the opportunity today to share with you a chapter from a book that Venerable Children has. We do these sharing the dharmas once a month. And over this past year, she has been going through the chapters in her wonderful book called Buddhism for Beginners. And we're right about in the middle of the book. And this is our last sharing the dharma until the spring of next year. And we're in the chapter of Buddhist traditions. And I was looking at, because the, the chapter is like two pages long, I wasn't sure I could come up with something for an hour, is that I looked at some of her other books and some teachings that she's done, and it's quite interesting that many of the books that she writes, she makes sure that she has a chapter on different Buddhist traditions. And that she, I think her hope is that the information that she shares will help us all understand more clearly what the differences and the similarities are in many Buddhist traditions, and that to bring us some clarity so that when we do, if we decide to follow or to, you know, really practice Buddhism, that we're clear about which tradition we're practicing and what the essential points are and what some of the differences are, so we can really connect with one of the Buddhist traditions with our hearts and minds and be able to follow it and know clearly what we're following. And then having perhaps made a decision on which tradition we want to practice is to hold in our hearts this deep respect for the diversity and for the different approaches in the other Buddhist traditions. And she uses this great analogy of going to a buffet, or back east we used to call them smorgasbords, where you just have this incredible variety of food. 
And so just to kind of imagine that all these different Buddhist traditions is kind of going through the smorgasbord and there's some things that are salty, some things that are sweet, some things that are creamy, some things that are clear. And you decide that some of these you prefer and some of them that you don't. But by the time you get to the end of the table and you filled up your plate, you're not about to take the stuff that you didn't choose and throw it out the window or throw it in the garbage. So she says to be able to take what we've learned and what we feel connected to, but yet to appreciate and to respect and honor the other Buddhist traditions. And we can use this in a bigger context. It's not only different Buddhist traditions, but also different spiritual traditions in general. And, um, and, that, um, and that that respect is very, very important um, for the short term and for the long term, for any type of spiritual traditions to be able to thrive and to prosper, to actually be able to benefit. So she, uh, she's very good about, very clear about putting that in all of her books to kind of bring it that back around and to explain the differences and the similarities. So to, um, to start this, uh, this talk today, um, we're going to kind of start at the beginning because that's always the best place to start as far as where Buddhism came from and where it went and, and the remarkable journey that it has taken. Um, and every year I realize that it's getting longer, you know, farther and farther from the time that the Buddha lived in our world, but it's still only 2,600 years ago. So in, the, in the, the age of the world, he was not in our world that long ago. And he traveled through most of northern India for about 45 years, sharing his understandings of what Venerable Tarpa pretty much beautifully laid out this morning, the Four Noble Truths, about the truth of dukkha, the causes, how they can be eliminated in the path to do that. So for 45 years he traveled throughout North India sharing that with whomever he met. And he had this incredible wisdom in that he could do that in a way that no matter who was in front of him, he would apply this remarkable skillful means to meet that person where they were, what situation they were in, what type of disposition they had, what sort of understanding or capacity they had. And that... Um, and, and as he went along, there were people who were extremely called to him and wished to become his disciples. And so he would teach them. They would become monastics. He would ordain them in a very one-sentence line. And as years went on, as they practiced the teachings that he shared, and they too gained some deep understanding of them, they would then become teachers and then go around, and then they would share and gather disciples What's remarkable about it is that the time of the world back then, this was all done as an oral transmission. That for 500 years past when he died, Buddhism came basically from word of mouth. It was an oral tradition. And so from the teacher to disciple, disciple who became teacher, it was all passed on orally. And that it went after India, you know, eventually the, the monastics went out and traveled out into Asia. They went to um, Southeast Asia, they went to Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand. They went across the, the sea route to China. They went up the Silk Road to Western China. They went into the Korakara Mountains. They went into the, over the Himalayas, Japan, Vietnam. Um, and so the teachings went vast, vast trajectory after his passing over a course of many, many centuries. 
And so it was a huge geographic area that they spread. And without the internet, <laughs> once it went to Sri Lanka and was practiced there, the people in Sri Lanka didn't know that the Dharma was in Japan. The people in Japan didn't know that the Buddha teachings had gone to China. And so as the teachings spread, they adopted very much to the culture of the land. They, they adapted to the, the dispositions of the people. The Buddhism adapted to the environment, the weather, the, the economics. And that, um, but what is so remarkable is despite the amazing adaptation that way, the purity of the teachings themselves have still stayed pure and intact. And that is a most remarkable thing. And so in all these movements, and so the, the hope as it comes to the West is that we, with all of the adaptations that may happen to it in the West, our deepest prayers here, at least my, one of my deepest prayers, is that we never lose sight. We never adapt and morph the purity and the essence of the Buddha's teachings where they no longer are what they are, which is a pure teaching that's gone through 2,600 years, but it still remains as he taught so in all of these movements of the Dharma to different countries, different points were emphasized or expressed externally, like as I go on and share some of this, they set up altars differently, the way that they chanted and which language they did, the way that they did prostrations, different points of the Buddhist teachings were emphasized. And that this happened in each of the countries distinctly their own with the cultural adaptations. And in the U.S. we have something quite extraordinary, like I said, is that unlike the rest of the world at that time and through the centuries due to technology and access, is that we've got all the Buddhist traditions in our country. And that to sort of sort ourselves through the variety and the choices to figure out what is what is pretty much our practice, is to figure out what's, what's what and who's who and what's similar and what's different. In old Tibet, you didn't have this problem about what to practice. I mean, the Buddhism went into Tibet, it would go into these, those beautiful mountainous valleys where there was usually a monastery and a lama, and that monastery, monastery basically catered to the spiritual needs of that community. You didn't get into a SUV and drive over the mountains to receive teachings. You pretty much had your whole Dharma life in your little valley, in your little village, or in part of the country. And that, um, in fact, a lot of the different Buddhist traditions didn't even know that the Buddha Dharma existed anywhere else but in their world. So there was no confusion about what to practice. There were rumors and myths from the travelers that would come across into their communities about, you know, I heard that he said that she said, I know they told me and they told them and they told them. It was mostly just a lot of myths and rumors, but for the most part their tradition stayed quite intact because there wasn't a lot of influence from other different factors. So the best way that for us here in this country to sort of get a handle on to think about the different types of Buddhist traditions that we have access to is to really get into seeing the similarities between them. That to finding out what are the essential points that sort of they share and that hold them together helps us to have any misconceptions about what the different Buddhist traditions are about. And it also helps that we don't criticize them, but we see that they are all focused on certain essential points, 
certain essential important practices and teachings, but they have different emphasis depending on the culture that they went into and the, and the dispositions of the people who practice that. And that if we understand the similarities amongst the different Buddhist traditions, then we're not going to have this kind of sectarianism that happens where we start getting divisive and mine's better and yours isn't and yours is different and weird. and you know, The kind of diversity that happens when we get into too much looking at the differences rather than the similarities. And that um, this point can be applied to all spiritual traditions in our world. We've seen that all the the sages who founded any of the spiritual traditions in our world, they did that to unify people. They did that to be able to show us how to grow our humanity, to cultivate kindness and forgiveness and be able to tolerate, live together. And unfortunately in our human experience, religion has been used basically in the opposite, which is to create conflict and political parties and the idea of us and them. And that we don't really need any more of that. So one of the main focuses in, in Buddhism is to make sure that that kind of divisiveness and politicizing it as best as we can doesn't arise. At least we can take responsibility for that in our culture. And Venerable Children tells a story that when she was in college, she majored in history. And that during that time, she became very cynical about religion. And it was, this was a few years before she met Buddhism. And that she would say to herself, you know, who needs religion if we're just going to divide people and have them kill each other in the name of God? She spent a lot of her younger, you know, years in her 20s when she was in college thinking about that. And she said in European history in particular, almost every generation there was some sort of war in the name of God. And so within Buddhism we don't need that conflict. We already know what the results are. And so um, we know how religion and history, how it, hit, it can really alter and affect history if it's used for division and for oppression rather than for connecting and for harmonizing. Now it's also true saying that, that there is some sectarianism in Tibetan Buddhism and there's some sectarianism in the Zen community, there's some sectarianism in the Theravada community and basically Venerable says it's not perfect because humans, because we're Buddhists, we're not Buddhists. You know, we have our biases, we have our prejudice, we have our closed-mindedness. However, the differences are not reasons to say, mine is better and you can't have what you want because you're wrong. So it's very important to, um, to keep our minds open. Someone asked His Holiness once, what's the best religious tradition? And he said, the one that makes the most sense to you. The one that helps you to grow your good qualities, the one that helps you to be wise and caring and loving and kind. That is so true because, you know, people have so many different interests and capacities and dispositions that one religion doesn't fit all. And that the Buddha taught in so many different ways and, it's so, and so many different things so that pe people could find something suitable from the Dharma for them. And if that doesn't work because of our incredible world is you can actually explore other religions. We have so many ways in which to connect and cultivate our good qualities and gain wisdom no matter what tradition. And there's such a choice that the diversity of humanity needs a diversity of spiritual traditions to really take care of its spiritual needs. And um, and we're so, you know, if one religion that we find helps us to be kinder, more ethical, more compassionate human beings, then that's the one 
for us, it's really kind of straightforward in that way. But what we find, or what we need to be careful about, is that when we feel, and this happened for me when I first met the Dharma, I felt such a hard connection to it, and then I got downright evangelical about it. <laughs> I wanted my, all my family, I wanted all my friends to become Buddhists, you know? And that causes more <laughs> disruption in a family and in friendships is when we get a little bit too evangelical about our connection. <laughs> so we have to really be careful not to pressure anyone, but to simply make, you know, this is what I've learned, this is what I've, I've benefited from, and if you're interested, I can show you where to find out. And let people in our family and our friends and our colleagues really make them the right kind of choices, you know, so that they can really choose for themselves. So then if we want to find the similarities amongst the various Buddhist traditions, we have to ask, well, what are the principal teachings common to all of them? And there are, I'm just going to name a few of them. There are many, but I want to start with a few of them. So um, the first one, which Venerable Tarpa so beautifully laid out this morning, are the first noble truths. Or as Venerable likes to reframe, the nobles for truths. Because they're referring to this, the, the, the practice of being able to see the truth of dukkha, which is true. The causes for dukkha, also true. <coughs> the cessations and the path to free oneself from the suffering, the dissatisfaction. This is, Venerable Tarpa laid that out. No matter which Buddhist tradition you look at, far or wide, all the teachings can be held within the framework of the Four Noble Truths. Um, the, the other one, so none of the teachings down at the very core are contradictory whatsoever. The next scheme of that is very common amongst all the Buddhist traditions is three things. First is the, the wanting to cultivate renunciation or the determination to be free from these unsatisfactory uh, conditions, the causes. It's called renunciation or the determination to be free. That's the first principle all of them share. The second one is love and compassion, caring for others. And in one of the traditions in particular, two major branches of Buddhism, the Mahayana tradition, that has been expounded in that not only do we want to have love and compassion for others, but we want to expand that to include everybody, leaving nobody out irregardless who they are, what they are, how they treat us, what they do for a living, what color their skin is, what kind of, they got ten legs or two wings or whatever. We have that same equal love and compassion for all beings and that we want to become awakened in order to be able to benefit them the best. So that's the second one, love and compassion. And then the third one is to cultivate the correct view of how reality really exists. And so that is a shared teaching no matter which tradition. Then we get into some of the more external, the external similarities is that all the Buddhist traditions bow. Doesn't matter whether you're Theravada, or Chinese, or Tibetan, or Japanese, all bow. And this is a way, to, as a symbol of humility and receptivity to the teachings. The Theravada, the beautiful bow in the Theravada tradition. They sit on the backs of their heels and they put their hands down and they put their foreheads down on the floor. Where in the Chinese and Tibetan tradition, we stand and then do bowing. And then the Chinese stay down longer than we do, but then they rise and stand up. So you've seen some of the, the prostrations in bowing today. So that is something that we all, all the Buddhist traditions share. All the traditions make offerings to the Buddha. So like we have here on the altar, we have flowers and light and incense and food. 
In the Tibet tradition, we offer water, which is something that we don't have a lot of attachment to because we have, as you can see, plenty of. Um, and in some of the traditions, uh, like in the Chinese tradition, you go into their temples and the altar is filled with flowers and incenses being burned all the time. Just extraordinary. Where if you go into a, a Zen temple, it's going to be very, very simple and, and just a few pieces beautifully arranged. So there's kind of, once again, cultural adaptations. Um, and this helps us to increase our delight in giving and our practice of generosity, offering to the Buddha helps us to have this kind of mind that really gets a lot of pleasure in giving. Um, all the Buddhist traditions have Buddha statues. Um, they look different according to the culture. Venerable was laughing, said, well, as, it, um, as Buddhism comes to the West, we'll have to see what the Buddha ends up looking like. Might morph into some sort of transgendered, beautiful being of some sort, but you know, <laughs> have blonde hair and tattoos. I don't know. But it'll look like something. And she says, that's all okay. We're not worshiping the statue, we're worshiping, they're very symbolic in that they symbolize the qualities of love, infinite compassion, wisdom, joy that we all really aspire to develop. So the, you know, cultures are very symbolic. And so the statues basically are what we're trying to be inspired because the Buddha had all of those qualities. And so the statues are, are basically just symbologies. Um, some of the temples are different in that in the Tibetan tradition, because Tibet was a stark and cold and vast landscape, their temples were filled with elaborate tapestries and beautiful statues and lots of gold and beautiful bright colors, where in Japan, where the climate is very lush and green, that the temples are very simple. So once again, the cultural adaptation, but all the traditions have temples. We all chant, some in Pali, some in Chinese, some in Tibetan, some in English, some in Japanese. This is uh, chanting brings the mind and body together to offer them the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. It's a way to uplift and inspire our minds by putting our body and speech kind of going in the same direction, in virtuous direction. All the Buddhist traditions talk about ethical conduct. Not killing, not stealing, um, no sexual misconduct, no lying, no taking intoxicants. Venerable says, well, in the West, we might want to fudge on the sexual misconduct and taking intoxicants, but right now we want to make sure that that's, so far that's what that's what's, holds true for all the traditions. Um, most of the, the Buddhist traditions have monastics who follow the Vinaya or the monastic ethical code. They have ordinations, they have precepts that they keep. Um, when Buddhism went to Japan, some of, uh, some of the masters who brought the teachings back including the Vinaya, the monastic code. And I don't know the full story of this, but they, but Venerable writes that they thought that it might not be suitable for the people as far as having a monastic song. I'm not sure exactly what she was referring to. And in, but in the mid-19th century, it was called the Meiji Restoration. The emperor actually imposed an order that the monastics would have to disrobe, become lay people, marry, and part of it was is that the Sangha tend to be quite a spiritual power in countries. And somewhere along the line, the emperor might have felt quite threatened by that. And so he kind of disempowered them by putting that edict out. 
Um, but they do have, so they have priests. There are no, there's no saga holding them in I Japan, but they do have priests, and they do take bodhisattva ordination, which is a very beautiful uh, keeping of precepts. Um, all the monastics in all the Buddhist traditions wear robes, although they're all different colors and styles. Um, in ancient India, actually, not only the Buddhist monastics wore them, but even non-Buddhist mendicants wore some version of robes. Saffron was considered a very ugly color back in India. So that's why the Buddha chose the bright saffron colors. The robes in Sri Lanka are orange Thailand ochre. In China, um, which is very interesting, is saffron in, in China was only worn by the emperor. So the monastics couldn't wear saffron. In India it was considered an ugly color, but in China it was considered a beautiful royal color. So then they started wearing grays and browns and earth tones. And then in Tibet, there was no saffron, so we ended up getting maroon. Um, also, in some of the Buddhist traditions, we have uh, no bare arm. Uh, some of the climates are simply too cold, and also in China, they wanted to uh, respect, uh, there was a, the Tang Dynasty was at the time when they were really starting to change their robes, and so they kept a long sleeve, which was custom for that dynasty. Uh, in some of the warmer climates, the shoulder is exposed, and some of the colder ones, it's not. And during the time of the Buddha, what would happen is this symbolizes that whenever the disciples came to the Buddha, they would circum out of deep respect, they would bow to him, circumambulate him, exposing this shoulder to him, sort of in humility and deep respect before they would sit and listen to the teaching. So this is one of the symbolic symbologies of having a bare shoulder. Um, they're also similar as far as the way that the robes are made. All the Buddhist traditions, although you can't see them sometimes, is they all have, on the outer robe like this, they all have seven panels going this way and three down. On the lower robes, they've got five panels. And then we have a, a, a special ceremonial robe that has anywhere from nine to 23 panels besides this one. So no matter which tradition, Theravada or Chinese or Sri Lankan, the robes have these panels and they came to be that when the Buddha first, the Sangha started to gather and they started wearing robes, he looked out into the rice paddies of India and he saw these beautiful patches. Everything sort of slightly different color. And so he had the Sangha sew together patches so their robes looked like the rice fields of India. And they used literally scraps from corpses and things abandoned on the side of the road. But it somewhat symbolizes the rice paddies. And these these robes, they're referring to the bhikshuni and the bhikshu robes. So the fully ordained saga are the ones that have all of these panels. Um, and in Japan, although they don't have the monastics, they have the priests wear these little things over their necks. They're called kisses. They're little tiny cloths and have stitching on them. If you look at them closely, they've got the panels stitched on them. So that's their way to really feel connected to the monastic tradition. Um, oh, they had a, a few years ago, Venerable went to one of the monastic gatherings uh, that we have here in the United States where all the Buddhist traditions meet together and network and share. 
they had a fashion show. And all of a sudden, they got to show you know, how they put their robes on and what they represent. And, and some of them are quite complicated, and they're yards and yards and yards of fabric. Ours are somewhat complicated, but the Theravada have just rolls and rolls and rolls of fabric. But she said it was a lot of fun to see how they, uh, how they explain the robes to each other. Um, another way in which um, uh, we try to hold something that the Buddha taught is that in ancient India, there was this very reciprocal, interdependent relationship between the Sangha and the laity, in that the Sangha would go into town with their alms bowls, and they wouldn't beg. They would walk into town with their heads down, very quietly, respectfully, and humbly. And the lay people would come out of their homes, and they would beckon them to the house, and they would offer them some part of their meal. In exchange for supplying and, and taking care of them as far as their food went, then the disciples would come to the villages or the, the laity would come to where the Buddha was and they would share whatever understandings they had of the Dharma. So this reciprocal relationship of sharing the Dharma and then supporting the Sangha so they wouldn't have to work until the fields, but they could actually practice and teach. So this giving and taking of food for the teachings is something that has been going on for 2,600 years. And this plays itself out in different Buddhist traditions. In Southeast Asia, where the Theravada or the Pali tradition evolved, they see um, one of their practices is to see craving and clinging as one of the main obstacles to uh, liberation, and so they go on what they call pintapot in Southeast Asia, where the monastics actually go into the villages with their bowls, and they basically accept whatever's put in their bowl. Noodles, broccoli, meat, fruit, whatever, just, uh, and, and, and practicing this intense gratitude for the kindness of the laity in supporting their lives. And this is not begging, this is not looking for handouts. This is really a beautiful practice of, of the Sangha opening themselves up to really depend on the kindness of the lay people. However, when that beautiful relationship went to China, the Chinese people mistook it for begging. They had a really hard time with it. And so the Sangha, rather than to disturb the laity's minds, they ended up eventually moving out of the, the cities and the bigger towns, out into the mountains and out into the country. Not only to sort of let that go, but having to depend on the laity, and the laity struggling with that high life, but also they wanted to get away from the politics. There was a lot of politics with the emperor's court and things in the bigger cities, and they didn't want to engage in that, so they moved themselves out of the cities. But what ended up happening is then they ended having to grow their own food. So they became a little bit more not... The, the, the people in the villages still came and gave them food, but they had to supply some of their own food so that they would be able to continue to practice and sustain their lives. Um, the the song in Thailand don't grow their own food because one of our precepts is actually that we don't dig in the earth. So the Chinese monastics had to take extenuating circumstances in order to, to sustain themselves. In Tibet, it's, well, it freezes most of the year, so doing alms rounds is just not practical. The monasteries um, were out of the city, so they were away from a lot of the population. And during the, the really the, the golden era of, 
of the Dharma in Tibet, a quarter of the males in the country were monks. So you could imagine a quarter of your male population going out on Pintapod, trying to get the small villagers to be able to feed everybody. So that wasn't possible either. So the monasteries, when they were built, they usually came with a, a parcel of land, and the local people would till the land and grow things, and then they would give a share of whatever they grew to the monasteries. Um, okay, so, and, um, and nowadays, that somewhat has changed in that a lot of the Tibetan monasteries, I'm not sure in Tibet, but certainly in India, that they get a lot of offerings from supporters. So the monasteries now have a little bit more to do with uh, buying food and taking care of the requisites. But the money comes from the supporters. And then, uh, so the Theravada monastics train their minds to give up craving, work on accepting whatever's put in their bowl. In the Mahayana tradition, provided, there's a little little addendum to that, is that when they do, go on Pintapai and somebody puts meat in their bowl, they have to know that, well, they didn't kill it themselves, somebody didn't kill it directly for them, or they didn't ask somebody to kill it. So the meat has got to be freely given without that background motivation to it. In some of the, uh, the Buddhist countries, the, the Mahayana tradition, the cultivation of love, even though the cultivation of trying to abandon craving is very important. Love and compassion become more of the main focus, and so they really don't want anybody harming other living beings to feed them. And so most of the Mahayana Buddhist traditions are vegetarians and they don't eat meat. So in Tibet, although they ate meat because they didn't have any land that's so cold there and so rocky that they couldn't grow fruits and vegetables, that they did eat meat as part of their requisites. But now that they are in India, where there's abundance of fruit and vegetables, His Holiness has been really trying to encourage the monasteries to become vegetarian. And as the years have gone on, they're slowly turning to where the monasteries in India are vegetarian. Um, here at the Abbey, we only eat food that is offered. Venable's really trying to hold the Buddhist teachings as one of our heart practices, which when she moved here in 2003, her monastic friend said, are you nuts? <laughs> Nobody's going to go up there. Bring you food, but that was nine years ago, and we have an incredible um, abundance of food brought to us due to the kindness of people close by. People offer financial support so that food can be purchased for us. So the whole idea of us not going into stores with money shopping—we don't have to do. We, we really depend on the kindness of others, and that has held true for us since the founding of the Abbey. In fact, Venerable hopes one day she has this fantasy that we might do Pintapot one day, either in Coeur d'Alene or Spokane. She's, it's kind of interesting in, in the West, at least in America, to do alms rounds in America, you need a parade permit. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, some of the Buddhist monasteries, Abayagiri, which is a Theravada monastery in Talmadge, California, Shasta Abbey, which is a Zoto Zentra uh, monastery in, in Mount Shasta, and the Bhavana Society in West Virginia, those are the three that I know, have actually do that with their local communities. And uh, in uh, Shasta Abbey, they actually, uh, when they first began, they would bring these little pieces of paper and hand them into the local people in town to kind of explain what they were doing. And usually their friends and supporters of the monastery would go to town that day and sort of be a little bit guiding lights on how to sort of 
offer food to the sun, but they walk down the middle of the street with their Japanese, you know, straw hats on with their bowls. And in America, you don't, they got a little bit of prepared food, but people were giving them bags of apples and loaves of bread and things like that. But we have monasteries who really are trying to sort of embody that dependent reciprocal relationship of going on all. So maybe someday we'll be able to do it here. I'm not sure. So there are some of the things that are um, similarities and differences, but yet still hold pretty common, pretty true amongst the different Buddhist traditions. So then we're going to get into, well, what exactly are the main divisions in Buddhism, and how do they sort of break down, and what are the different um, emphasis on the different uh, main branches of Buddhism. So this you got to bear with me, because it sounds a little complicated, but... You know, it's, it's really helpful to understand. Okay. So there are two main branches or divisions of Buddhism. Two. It looks like a lot more, but it's only two. The first one, the first branch, is the Pali tradition, also called the Theravada tradition, also called the Southern tradition, because when it left India, it was mostly found in Southeast Asia and it was recorded in the Pali language, so Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka. It emphasizes meditation on the breath to develop concentration, and meditation on the mindfulness of the body, feeling, mind, and phenomena to develop wisdom. In Pali, these two types of meditation are called shamatha, or calm abiding, or vipassana, or insight. So that's the first one, their main practice is those types of meditation. Think very much about ethical conduct, understanding the correct view. So that's the Pali or the Theravada tradition. The second one is called the Sanskrit, because that's how it came in. It was, came in through the Sanskrit language. Or Mahayana tradition or Northern tradition, because when it came out of India, it went to China, it went to Tibet, it went to Korea, it went to Vietnam. And although love and compassion are essential practices in the Theravada tradition. In this Mahayana tradition, they're a huge, that's the main focus, how to cultivate great love, great compassion, uh, to be able to become a Buddha in order to benefit all beings. So they headed in different directions, they went in different languages, they had different names, and slightly different emphases on what they practiced. But once again, remembering that the fundamental ones, the Four Noble Truths, Renunciation are still common. The primary differences between these two branches is motivation. In the Theravada or the Pali tradition, the main motivation is to free yourself from the cycle of birth, aging, sickness, and death, practicing the Four Noble Truths, practicing ethical conduct, meditation, cultivating wisdom. Um, but, there, but you're doing that for the main motivation of your own liberation. And when you free yourself from the world of birth, aging, sickness, and death, you become an arhat. Okay, that's the motivation of the Theravada tradition. In the Mahayana or Sanskrit tradition of which we are, not only do we want to free ourselves from birth, aging, sickness, and death, and the ignorance, and the attachment, and the anger, but we also want to help all beings to be free as well. All right, so there's a little bit of a bigger, we practice the same Vipassana, we practice the shamatha, we cultivate ethical conduct, but this mind of bodhicitta, this awakened mind, 
to, to practice for the sole purpose of being able to benefit all beings, irregardless of who they are. And needing to become a Buddha, a fully awakened, omniscient being, to be able to do that is our motivation. And that um, in the West, we've had some confusion about what we don't have these as them. We have a, a, an incorrect understanding of what the main Buddhist traditions are. In the West, it has been said that our major, the main Buddhist traditions are Vipassana, Zen, and Vajrayana. doesn't sound like Theravada or Mahayana to me. So Venerables lays this out on why that's incorrect. Okay, so this is where it gets a little bit tricky, just follow the thinking. So once again, the two main branches are Theravada or Mahayana. One, the liberation of oneself, liberation of all beings, including oneself. So here's why these three, Vipassana, Zen, and Vajrayana, are incorrect. Okay, first of all, Vipassana is a meditation technique taught by the Buddha. And as we said prior, is that it's common in all the Buddhist traditions, irregardless where it went, what robes they wear, Vipassana is a meditation technique. It was learned by Westerners who went to Southeast Asia back in the 70s and 80s, so they went into Sri Lanka and Thailand, the Theravada tradition countries, and they brought it back as a meditation technique only not as it is originally taught, which is it's incorporated into an entire Buddhist tradition. It's a form of meditation. They took it and extracted it out of the Theravada tradition. And one of the main thinkings that they had is that a lot of Westerners may not be interested in the Buddhist worldview. They may not be interested in cosmology, but they might prove to be very interested in the meditation technique that calms and centers and stabilizes their mind. So that's how the Vipassana got extracted, but it's not a Buddhist tradition in and of itself. It's actually is in all the Buddhist traditions. And it's for the purposes to understand the nature of, of reality. Okay, so there, so that's the first misunderstanding. It's incorporating all the Buddhist traditions. The second one that they say Zen is a main Buddhist branch, it's not. It's part of the Mahayana tradition the tradition that says not only do I want to be free of liberal, of samsara, but I want all beings to be free. It's one of the, the lineages within the Mahayana tradition. There are different Zen traditions within the Mahayana tradition, and there are different Mahayana traditions that aren't Zen. There's Tibetan, there's Chan, there's Vietnamese, there's Pure Land. So Zen is not a main branch, it's a subset of Mahayana. With, you know, its own adaptations. And then the third one that they say, well, Vajrayana is a main branch of Buddhism. It's not. Once again, it's a subset underneath the Mahayana tradition. <laughs> to practice this, okay, Vajrayana is underneath Mahayana tradition. The wish to become a Buddha for all sentient beings, including oneself. To get to that level of practice, you have to start at the beginning. You have to start at the Four Noble Truths. You have to practice and understand impermanence, the disadvantages of cyclic existence. You have to cultivate your love, your compassion, your equanimity. Only having that kind of basis 
can you really go into this very profound Vajrayana practice, which takes years to be able to be ready for. But it's not a main branch of Buddhism, it's a subset underneath the Mahayana tradition. So they kind of got extracted and held up by themselves, which they don't belong there. So this is where having all these Buddhist traditions in America, how it could be confusing. And then, within the various, this is the last piece, and this is quite fascinating, is that within the various Buddhist traditions, we have the sutras or the discourses on the teachings of the Buddha. They're called canons. There's a Pali canon, there's a Tibetan canon, there's a Chinese canon. And then how were these canons produced? At the time of the Buddha, 500 of his dearest disciples, remember the oral transmission was only done orally? They recollected all of the Buddha's teachings. So for those 500 years after the Buddha's passing, Buddhism spread via word of mouth. And it was only until the first century CE in Sri Lanka when it was recognized that there was only one monk who remembered one of the sutras in the Pali Canon. And when he died, unless the transmission was carried on with more than one person, that they were going to lose that teaching of the Buddha. So it was then when they began to write down the scriptures in order not to lose any of them. So as time went on, the scriptures, the canons in these different countries, things were added to them as the transmissions were carried on and brought to these countries. And then after a few hundred years, some monks, and Venerable says, we don't actually know which ones, closed these canons, closed the canons in these different countries. And that even after the teachings spoken by the Buddha, which are called the Mahayana teachings, of which we have in our canon, because they were taught to very few human beings and a large amount of very realized beings. They came much later than the Buddha. They were kept quite secret. So even though the Buddha, the Buddha taught and all of his teachings have been brought to these different parts of the world, some of them came later because they weren't accessible to the human family. They only came later when these great sages felt that it was time to bring them into the world. And so they were written quite a bit later, written down quite a bit later. Some of the sutras went to China by the Chinese monks who overcame great hardships by traveling over the Himalayas. They sailed to all the different countries. But they were, they were written down. And in um, Tibet, not many of um, the sutras that went to Southeast Asia managed to get to Tibet. So the, we have the Kangir. These are the, the teachings of the Buddha that were brought from India in these yellow brackages here. And over here are the commentaries or the explanations by the great Indian masters on the teachings of the Buddha. And they're printed in Tibetan. So this is kind of how it went, is that the great masters went to their countries, they learned Sanskrit or Pali, brought them to China, brought them to Vietnam, and then proceeded to write them down. They had commentaries from India, they also translated those. So as the centuries went on, most of the countries have, depending on access, how much of the Buddhist teachings came to their countries, some of their canons are quite complete and some of them aren't. But that's the beauty of having the commentaries, that's the beauty of having the access that we have these days, is that we probably have access to more of the complete teachings of the Buddha than probably any place in the world.
I think I want to end with that because there's a lot more to say about the sutras and how they came to be and how they went to Tibet and there's just a lot more information. I don't want to overwhelm you with a lot of this. But how venerable kind, I wanted to leave some room for questions too. So with all of these different varieties of Buddhism here in our country, it's very important not to get attached to my tradition. I'm a Zen practitioner, I'm a Tibetan Buddhist tra- practitioner, I'm a uh, Chinese Chan practitioner, my teacher comes from Sri Lanka, I only practice this kind of Buddhism, is that we keep our minds and hearts open to all the variety of traditions, and that we're all humans who seek happiness and want to realize the truth, and we need to find a path that's best suited to us. And one of the things that happens, because we have such access to to all the Buddhist traditions, and because we're such individuals, and we have such an amazing culture, that one of the concerns is that as we learn about Buddhism, unless we understand what we're hearing and be able to make wise choices, we're going to take a little bit from this tradition, we're going to take a little bit from that tradition, we're going to take a little bit from this tradition, where Venerable says it's going to start looking like chop suey after a while. We're not going to be able to, we don't have enough deep understanding in regards to one tradition, that we're not going to be able to progress along, along the path because we don't have any continuity. So she says in the beginning, if you find one of the Buddhist traditions that really connects to your heart, is to just stay with that tradition for a while. Become very, very, just delve right into it. Learn all the practices, study, read books about it. Try to get a handle on the tradition that you feel connected to before pulling and extracting from different traditions. Because the concern of things just becoming a big mishmash in this culture is... Well, we want the purity of the teachings of the Dharma always to remain. And if we get in there, how our culture is going to adapt it, well, you can already see how we're influencing it with our wonderful magazines, mandala and tricycle, the amount of Dharma materials that are out there for us to read, the amount of teachings. So it's very, very important that we just stay very, very true to our, um, our hearts, and to connect with the tradition, and take the time to get to know that tradition as well as we can, to practice it as well as we can. And so, for Shravasti Abbey in the Tibetan tradition, as you can see that the purity of the teachings, one of the main roles of the Sangha in our world, is that because we live in these very conducive environments, because we practice the Dharma all the time, is that we have kind of taken on a responsibility to hold the purity of the teachings for the world as best as we can, so that we can share with your understandings, that then you go out into the world and you practice and you gain understandings. But the importance of the Sangha, the monastic tradition, in all these Buddhist traditions, is so important that it stay alive, that it hold the Dharma, because that's our main focus here at the Abbey, is to practice and to someday, some life, be able to have the realizations that the Buddha said we can have. And when we share it with, our, with the laity, the insights and the wealth of wisdom that's coming back to us from all of your practice, you know, that's where that beautiful reciprocal relationship of being able to share practice with each other. So that's the, the plethora of the juiciness, the smorgasbord that we have available. And to um, really respect the diversity, to really delve into understanding what the similarities, what the essence is, and to always come back to that. 
and then to see the beautiful variations and to really, you know, set your heart on which one works for you and then go for it. So that's, I mean, there's a lot there. So I just wanted to leave maybe a few minutes if anybody has any comments or questions about this very topic. Yes, sir. I got a question. Like, those are the, the teachings. Did you, how do you know which one, which teaching comes with which answer? Well, there's pieces of paper in there. These are also in Tibetan. There's pieces of paper that have them numbered. We photograph them so that the way that they look on the shelf, the piece of paper, they're numbered and named, and they correlate with a piece of paper that has them listed over here, too. Okay. So, unless you take them and mix them all up, <laughs> when we put the altar back together, getting them from down in the community room, they all had numbers, and they had to be placed back in these cupboards exactly the way they were taken out because there is an order and a sequence on both sides. So don't come in here at lunch <laughs> and start shuffling things around. <laughs> uh, over the past year I've been coming here, but I've also been going to the Jodo Shinshu, a Buddhist temple in Spokane, and you're absolutely right, the Dharma is the Dharma, but there are some I find some fundamental differences between the two teachings. One being um, at, at the Shin Buddhist temple, they don't really emphasize that you have a path to reach enlightenment. Um, they, they feel that, that we're ignorant and that we're not capable of um, following a path ourselves, so they emphasize more uh, of, a, of a chanting to Amida Buddha and that somehow through um, continuing to um, chant and pay homage to Amida that uh, we will gain enlightenment. It, the other difference is they don't really emphasize rebirth. Uh, they feel that at the time of death is when you reach enlightenment. Um, so uh, there's, there's really, uh, they don't address the rebirth issue. So I think that's quite, quite a difference. But as you said, the Dharma is still the Dharma. Well, there is a there is a, a a tradition. There is a Buddhist tradition called uh, Pure Land, which chanting Amitabha's name right. is a very very powerful. That's their main practice, yeah. and to have the mind so imbibed with that name, that visualization, this beautiful this white statue here, and the beautiful there's a beautiful painting on the back side here of Amitabha on the other side of the shelf here, the Buddha of Infinite Light, and they really do. I mean, their practice is that at the time of death, that, that recitation, that remembrance of, of Amitabha will well, propel them to, to his pure land, yeah. where then the conducive circumstances to practice. Shin is a help. pure land tradition, yeah. and, and what they recite is Namo Amida Butsu. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, Namo Amitabha in um, right. Pali or Chinese. Right. But I'm not sure about the, the other pieces as far as rebirth and that we're ignorant and we can't and become enlightened at death. I'm not I, sure. I personally prefer that that if I follow a path that I'll be capable of doing that. It it just seems to me that it's it more like uh, Christianity that you have to ask for grace to be saved and uh, um, you know, I, I like that in the Tibetan tradition that there's a there is a path that one can follow.
But see, this is the one, you know, one religion doesn't fit all. Absolutely. And, That's right. You know, people are profoundly affected by the practices in, in their own way. Yes, I want to comment on your, uh, uh, the dangers of the smorgasbord and how it's important to, you know, you know pick a path or, or, or pick a tradition and, and really work with it. Um, you know, what, I think one of the dangers of that smorgasbord is uh, that you'll pick the elements that feel good and you'll ignore the ones that really challenge you. That's why I've, one thing I found by, you know, I, I made some connections with Tibetan teachers and the, the, the teachings worked for me, I got to you know, follow this path, is then you hit those teachings or those practices that, oh, I don't like that one. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's making me change. <laughs> But the smallest board, I could, well, that's not, that's not, I'll, I'll take this one instead because it passed me on the back. You know, it, I think it's important to you know, not just pick a, a path that feels good, but, but pick the tradition in its entirety, and especially the ones that the challenge you. Challenging, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Dennis, for sharing. Yeah. A lot of wisdom with experience. So Dennis has been a, a, a student of Venables for many years, so probably trial by fire. <laughs> yes? I just have specific questions about the canons you mentioned. The um, canons. The canons, yeah. So are those uh, chants? They're the scriptures, they're the teachings of the Buddha. Okay. So, uh, and um, specifically, I'm thinking of, you know, after lunch, we always recite one of the, are those? So that because I, I find it very fascinating, we go through there real fast. And I'd like to, you know, always want to stop and look at this more closely. <laughs> they're you know, teachings yeah. of the Buddha put into, translated into English, but there are commentaries and teachings, and scripture actually have the three principal aspects of the path, the Heart Sutra, the Eight Verses, they're all within some of the Buddhist scriptures, but we've taken them as just a way to inspire us, to remind us over and over again. But there are quite extensive commentaries on all of those chants that we do at lunch, and in some of Venerable's books, some of her teachers' books, some of his holiness's books. Yeah, and the, the part of the speed of it, this, this is why, and it, it works for me, is that I have to be so present with what I'm saying that I can't vacate the premises while I'm chanting. So I can't be wandering away to what's going to happen this afternoon because I've got to be right there following it. And it also drops drops the mind into just being present with the words. Yeah. But it, it can be pretty <laughs> disconcerting. Like, wait a minute. Stop. Yeah. Wait, I'm back here. It's also great because then you memorize them and then, yeah. you have, then you have in your memory that you can contemplate. While you're walking the dog, they'll just come to you, you know? The dog? When you're walking the cat, they'll just come to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, take a moment. Oh, uh, yeah, we can do it during Q and A. Yeah, that's that's after. Yeah, let's let's, let's finish up. Here. I don't want to run off track. Yeah, we'll catch you with your question. So let's take a moment. If there's anything that you heard today that kind of brought a little bit of curiosity or understanding or clarity or maybe more questions, just Take a moment and uh, connect with that.
that underneath all of this, I would have to say that our search for truth, in whatever way that call goes out from our own hearts and minds, is really what this is all about. So let's rejoice in that search for truth. And by listening and sharing with each other, may that search get some uh, wisdom, get some clarity, so that we can find that which we so deeply want, is the truth that really does end the suffering of not only ourselves, but all beings. <laughs>